Hey, Chuckles, this is Juan from Fuagata Podcast. Um, just touching base with you guys to talk to you about Anchor. This is the program I use to do all my podcasting and everything that I'm doing right now. It is an easy one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. And it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. If I can use it, you can use it. I was looking for something that was easy, that I can use in one-on-one, that I didn't need a bunch of equipment. I'm doing everything off my phone. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. Yeah, amazing, right? Now, my podcast, of course, kind of covers all these different kind of subjects and everything else. But it's a great outlet for everything that I'm doing and everything I'm trying to get out and the thoughts. And right now, as a, as a comedian, especially a stand-up comedian, there's nowhere to go. So the easiest way to put stuff out has been on here, especially during the quarantine. So if you're wanting to start a podcast and even have a chance of making money while doing it, go to anchor.fm forward slash start. That's anchor.fm forward slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm forward slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Let's get to it. Aurora was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
She will never regret the time she packed up three suitcases to move to sunny Miami, Florida, to pursue a master's degree in mass communications at Florida International University. Some of Aura's loves include writing, pop music, jeans and graphic tees, their friends, champagne, and her husband, Sebastian. Aura is also a very gifted writer, and she's a um, very seasoned educator. And the two panelists today are Jamila and Warren. Jamila Browser is like a Latina. She's also the co-founder of Geek Girl Brunch and the creator of Straight Outer Delta and the former blog Girl Gone Greek. Sorry, Geek. Girl Gone Geek. <laughs> <laughs> she grew up around the world as a military brat, but dressed the Bronx and lives in South Florida. Most of her free time is spent watching anime and looking at plants. And Juan Navarro is in the heart and center of the comic book industry. As a retailer, he has first-hand knowledge of the business side of this roller coaster of a world. Um, he has a very amazing uh, comic book shop in Iolia. And as a creator of creature entertainment, he has experienced an entirely different kind of life. He knows all about publishing and creating and just being part of the amazing comic book world. So here you have it, our panel for this afternoon. Thank you. Awesome, so guys, welcome. It is an honor to be here with these two amazing artists, people, both who um, we're gonna be talking today with you guys. We wanna keep this very much open. So we have some questions that I will be asking them that they that will kinda get the conversation going, get the conversation flowing. Um, but at the end of the day, this is for all of us and for you guys to get to know them and for you guys to ask them any pertinent questions. So we'll, we'll start with the conversation. Um, and then towards the end, we will have time for Q&A and just a lot of fun stuff that will help you guys a lot today. So I'm gonna start with my first question. So um, as always, we wanna learn more about you guys today. So please tell us a bit about your background and where you are from. Okay, um, so I, I'm a military brat. Eight, which means like I had a parent who was in the military. My mom was in the Air Force, and I was born on a base, raised on bases all around the world. And um, I was born in England, lived in Hawaii, Holland, Germany, California. Um, I may be forgetting one. And settled in the Bronx, because that's where both my parents are from, so that made it really easy for me to feel like I had a hometown. Um, I went to school upstate New York and lived in the Bronx for about 10 years, and then Rent was getting higher and higher, and New York is just, I love the city, but I needed to get out. <laughs> so my mom moved down here, and that's, that's what brought me to South Florida. Um, but as far as geek culture and stuff goes, I've been a fan of it since I was young. My parents like it as well. I have uncles who are fans, so it was just always around me. Um, and when I was in college, actually after I graduated, um, and I was in grad school, I started my blog, Girl Gone Geek. Um, because I felt like there was this void that I was missing where I wanted to talk about geek culture, 
um, but most of my friends didn't know it or outside of Harry Potter, everything was just really foreign to them. I had one friend that I could talk to about that. And so I wanted to write and I wanted to start a blog so that seemed like the next logical step. So with that, the blog was sort of like the epicenter of all of these other projects that I've created and I blogged for six years and throughout that time I was able to go on multiple panels um, and started Geek Girl Brunch. Um, and Aurora is one of our officers. Yes. So Geek Girl Brunch is a international meetup group for women to uh, geek out and meet up over brunch. And we really wanted to create a safe space for women and non-binary folks to come and talk about things that they're passionate about and a space where they don't have to worry about misogyny or you know any kind of bigotry and just nurture these friendships that uh, we felt were really important. So. It started as just like very organically and it grew to now having chapters all around the world, literally thousands of members. Um, it's really insane because it's all been organic. Like we've not, like we've done no marketing. It's really just like word of mouth and social media. Um, but I think the growth of it is, goes to show how much it was needed in the space. Um, and so it's something that's been a lot of work but we're really proud of. Um, and Straight Outta Gotham is another project, so I'm always doing the most. <laughs> and so Straight Outta Gotham is a project that um, highlights the connections between hip-hop and geek culture. So, you know, I would listen to rap songs and I would hear about a lot of, I'd hear a lot of geek references in the songs and it would make me really happy, so I wanted to find a way to showcase that. So I started to make memes featuring like these rap songs and, or these lyrics in the songs. Um, but then it kind of grew to writing articles and curating playlists that have been on title. Um, and I do that with my boyfriend, Jamar. And so that's another fun project. Um, and it's all been this journey that has led me up to what I'm doing now as a comics writer. Um, so I've loved comics for a while. And um, there's just reading more and more, there's just stories that I wasn't uh, seeing that I wanted to be told. And so I decided to write them. Um, I couldn't wait for anybody else to create something that I wanted to read. So um, it took a lot of courage though, because you know, self-doubt and all that kind of stuff plays a big role, but I finally was like, well, all these other mediocre people can <laughs> create like comics <laughs> for like even the big two, then I can fund my own stuff and get these stories out there. So I um, started with Wash Day. So Wash Day is my first comic. Um, and it is a, a slice of life comic that pays tribute to the beauty and endurance of black hair. And um, I'm really a fan of slice of life stuff and I wanted my first comic to be about something that I felt was really important um, and representative of what I cared about to people who I cared about, which is black women. And I wanted to write something for them, by and for them. So I wrote that and Robin Smith is a wonderful artist who I worked with on the project and um, through Kickstarter we were able to fund it to get it printed and also get it translated into Spanish so we have it in English and Spanish um, and I have some other works that are, are coming out over the next few months but um, it's been exciting but through that my experience through publishing is very on the like self-publish aspect um, and I know Juan has a lot of experience too. <laughs> No, I'm like I'm like enthralled. I'm like oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> that great. Was a lot. That's like awesome. my life. I love the music thing with the with Straight comics because that's that's yeah. it's like it's one of those things that meets together. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, Juan Navarro, I was born and raised in Hialeah in Miami. Um, went to New World School of the Arts. I went to a bunch of places, but I graduated from Northwestern Senior High. I was uh, on high school world tour because I was a very good artist, but a horrible student, so I kept getting kicked out of places. Um, but I ended up at Savannah College of Art and Design. Um, I had applied for 34 different art schools, got into 32 of them. And I was ready to go to like all these schools. I had a full scholarship to Kansas City and to Otis. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go be a painter. And then this lady goes, oh, we have sequential art. And I go, what is that? And it's like, <laughs> comics. And I went, what? And I just went there. I was like, all right, I'm going to go make comics. Um, I was the classic, you know, drawing since I was a little kid, you know, got in the comics. But, you know, I was into Heathcliff comics and He-Man comics. And then one day my friend had a classic X-Men 31, which has like Wolverine with his like claws through Hulk's head, and I was like, who's this guy who killed the Hulk? Like, <laughs> it was a robot, it was a Hulk robot, but I was like, what is this? And I ended up at Charlie's Comics, which is a big comic store that was in um, Hialeah for many years, and I went in there, and I just, that, that's when I went down the rabbit hole. I became so into comics, I <laughs> was reading, and I always wanted to be a comic book artist, but I ended up at Magnet Programs, I wanted to be a painter, a sculptor, or anything else, and I kind of fell out of comics for a little bit, and then a, um, there was a cartoon called The Max that came out on MTV, and um, I had a girlfriend at the time, I didn't have cable at home, so she recorded for me and I would watch it on VHS, and she goes, oh, it's based on a comic book, I'm like, what? Because this guy's using like graffiti style and stuff, and I was getting into that, and like Von Bodie, you know, like 70s underground comics, I was like, who is this guy? And Image Comics was doing it, I went into a Specs, of all places, a record store, bought the comic book, and I was like, holy crap, I was like amazed by this thing, and I saw what comics could be. So since then, I wanted to get into comics. Went into college for comics. I, I got out of there. I ended up graduating from New World at University of Florida. And I was just making comics on my own. Like, the best thing was I just found out, like, yeah, you, you don't need anybody's permission to do this. There's no, like, wall. There's nobody there, like, to tell you, hey, you can't, you know, you need a license to make comics. You can just make them. Yeah. So I was just like, that's amazing. So I just started making my own. I did zines for a while. I did my own printed ones. And then I got my break in um, and web comics. And my break was uh, working with graphicsmash.com, which was the first, like, one of the major action-oriented uh, web comic uh, companies under Modern Tales. I worked with them. I worked with an Italian publisher called Micro Publishing for some years. And little by little, I got these weird little indie jobs that, like, I would get them, and I'm like, I just finished a 110-page gra graphic novel. No one's ever going to see it because, like, the Italian publisher went under, and they got sued for something. And this other. So I kept going through the industry, but I kept making stuff. So because of that, I found myself one day, I lived in California for a while in Chicago. I was uh, working in advertising, working in different fields. When I came back to Miami, I, I found out, oh, these guys, there's a meetup group for comic book creators. And I was like, oh, let me go see what's up. And I met John Ayua. And it was funny, we were talking, and he used to make high-impact comics, which was back in the early 90s when the big 90s craze was happening. He was doing the bad babes, big boobs, you know, like <laughs> crazy stuff. like. Oh, if only it was pouches. <laughs> if only it was pouches. Yeah. But he was doing that stuff. I'm like, I remember you guys. You were like the Miami comic book company. They were doing. They were making crazy money. Like they had covers done by Joe Casada, who was a Marvel editor. They had um, who else was on there? I remember like he, the, all these names. These guys that were working there, and they're big names now. So Jimmy Palmiotti worked with them, and all these other guys. So I worked with him, and we just started. You know, Creature was already formed. I joined, and then we really formed from there. We started doing some stuff. And I did uh, zombie years for eight years. Uh, it was a post-apocalyptic zombie story that takes place in Miami. It did really well. Um, my poster's already all over the Miami City Police Department because they love oh, the nice. copper tone. Have you ever seen a zombie copper tone ad? That's me. 
Um, <laughs> me and Patrick Riley was a painter. And we luckily had this great group of guys, a great group of people that worked with us. And we've been doing it for almost 10, uh, 10 years plus now as a company with all these different uh, guys. We do conventions across the country. We do New York Comic Con, San Diego, Emerald City in Seattle. We do all the different conventions and been able to sell our comics all around the world. And it's been really fun. We're not making a crazy living on it yet. We're not picking out Ferraris, but we're, we, we have a comic book shop now that helps fund the studio, keeps the lights on, keeps everything else going, keeps fans coming in. We try to do a community thing where we talk to people. We give classes sometimes. We, we bring in other artists so that they have a home to talk to, some people to come in and just bounce off ideas. And yeah, we've been doing that for a while now, and it's been pretty good. That's awesome. And, and coming from the world of graphic novels and comic books, I have kind of like a two-part question for you guys. So first, um, is there something that you have considered an inspiration towards your work? Let it be a place, let it be people. And who are some of your biggest inspirations in the comic book and graphic novel? As far as, I mean, as far as places, I, I lived in San Francisco for five years. So there was other places that I was like, you know, I would go to Comic Relief, I would go to Isotope, and I, what I saw, which was great, was there was a community. Mm -hmm. So one dude was making comics and they had a couple of pages, there's like five people there. Mm -hmm. like, and you know, one guy might work at Marvel, one guy might be a letterer or something, and, and there was always an exchange. And we, al we always had this thing about community, and it was always better, even if it was just sitting there, you know, we're the, we're the only like comic book studio that has a bar in it. So we have a bar <laughs> in our place, so we sit there and we'll drink beers and we're like, you know we should be drawing, right? We're like, yeah. We'll <laughs> and keep drinking, but, but we, sometimes it's just the relief, stress relief, you know, mm -hmm. talking to, to each other and, and you know, looking at somebody's page and, exactly. and be like, dude, I can't get this hand right. And I'm like, oh, well, do this or try this technique Got or it. do this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to move over to do comics digitally and some of these guys are way more advanced. So, well, they can help me, they can compare notes. And then sometimes they're stuck on something and I'm like, there, try acrylic nice. paint. And they're like, what? You know? So it's, it's that community is the main thing that inspires me because when you're in the convention circuit and you do enough of them, you start knowing people. And the fact that I can go and say, like, Neil Adams is a friend of mine. Like, I can go, Neil Adams, like, one of the greatest things. Yeah, yeah, a buddy of mine. Like, I see him all the time, and people are like, Neil Adams, like, he's a big deal. I'm like, no, I just see him all the time, and he's a cranky old man that throws stuff, you know? Like, <laughs> I get to, you know, he's cool. Like, I, you know, so that's part of it, too. I think the community is the biggest thing. Wonderful. The like. How about for you? Um, as far as inspirations go, a lot of, of what I see myself creating is inspired by a lot of slice of life. Jose and ma uh, shoujo manga, um, I gravitated towards those stories a lot. I saw myself in a lot of those characters, so those are kind of the ones that mm -hmm. I'm more drawn to. But also, um, there's specific musicians that um, inspire me too, and something that I want to mm -hmm. sort of uh, inspire how I want to create. So like artists like Missy Elliott, who I feel like is one of the best of all time, super innovative. And um, and even um, Frank Ocean and artists that tend to like create stuff that I find is really beautiful, but also um, it's really beautiful and it's like on this high art sort of aspect, but then it's super easy to consume for every man, you know, or every person. So that's kind of what I want to do is this mm -hmm. mix of like high and low art, um, that's, that's what I'm trying. I mean, those, those are like really amazing artists, so if I can just fall somewhere in their shadow, I'll be really happy. 
<laughs> no, I think music's a huge thing. Because mm-hmm. for us, it's like, we got into like, there was just an antic of like synthwave. Like we got into synthwave music and it's just like, Miami Beats and like, bro, imagine Max in Miami and they're going to Flagler Street and they're shooting stuff and then they'd stop for a cafecito or like, and we're just in the music and we're just like yeah. writing stuff down and everything else. And that's like a project for in five years, you know, blah, blah, blah. music's a huge influence. Mm-hmm. I will not say no to Cafecito. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to your background as well, your background as a person and your experiences, how has that inspired your creativity? Um, I was a metal head, you know, punk rock kid. But from my background, oh my God, muchísimo gracias. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Man, in the first panel, I got cafecito. That's like, I'm like, now now any panel I do from now on is just the downside. I'm listening to like, there's no cafecito here, this sucks. Um, But for me, you know, I grew up in Hialeah. Mm -hmm. It's predominantly Cuban, but I'm half Mexican, half Cuban. So Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, my mom would send me, my parents would send me to Mexico for the summer. Mm -hmm. And then I would live there, be with my cousins, my grandparents, you know, living on a ranch, very rural. Come back to Miami, very industrial. My father had a paint and body shop. But my father, you know, the coolest thing about my dad was that he was like, well, he from Cuba, like, typical mm-hmm. farm guy. He never understood what we were doing. <laughs> like, he understood, but he was like, whatever, you, you seem to be happy doing this, go do it. Mm-hmm. So because of it, we were always making up our own stuff. Yeah. Like, I grew up without too much internet, too much anything. So you're always mm-hmm. building your own stuff, making your own comics, mm-hmm. making your own characters. So the, my thing was, you know, music was a huge part of it. My friends mm-hmm. were a huge part of it. You know, my thing was, I want Professor X to show up in Miami and, like, <laughs> look for a Hylia kid, you know, something like that. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so the question's how my background Yeah, your background, your experiences, um, yeah. So we, so my mom's Puerto Rican, Dominican, my dad's black, and so, and I lived all over the world, so what they really tried to do for me and my brother was make sure we were aware of our culture, we were knowledgeable, we, you know, forced us to read books and, and articles and things like that because in the middle of, like, Holland, we're not going to really see that much of, of our culture mm-hmm. where we are and also just, like, instill a sense of pride. Um, and my dad's teacher, and he knows how much of our history is not in the school. So that was just something I was always brought up on. And um, and even with like wash day and hair specifically is really interesting because I had perms up until college and my dad has had locks since I was born. Um, so every time I get a perm, he would I would get lectures like, <laughs> "Your hair is beautiful. You shouldn't be doing this." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, "Daddy, be quiet." I mean, of course I didn't say that, um, but I was just like really annoyed. I'm like, "My hair is gonna look good, even though it's just gonna be like." dead street <laughs> but I'm like it's easier to manage blah 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 but it was sort of like a journey I, I had to go on on my on my own but I think as I look back I I'm really happy because I think without the sort of like structures that my parents set up I wouldn't be who I am today and also growing up around the world just being around all these different cultures um and also seeing America through an outsider's point of view, which is funny because like I grew up on base, which is like one of the most patriotic things. You think <laughs> of like America, you think of like the military and it's super patriotic, but my parents, they just joined the military to get out of the Bronx. Like both of them were in the military, but my dad got out and became a teacher and my mom stayed. So they were, it was not what some people might consider like a, an average military sort of family. They were like 
we're going to France, we're going to Strasbourg, we're going to like all these different places. So because they still to this day like can't imagine, like mm -hmm. they didn't imagine that they would be able to see the world um, just growing up in the Bronx every day. So that's a huge part of it. Also just New York too, like spending my sort of like, you know, uh, what is it called? Um, coming of age, but like the second coming of age when you're in your 20s and you're going to college and all that stuff. In New York, which I love the city, but it's hard and like going through a lot of those sort of emotions and stuff in New York is a huge influence. Like whenever I think of stories, a lot of the times my default is New York um, because so many of those experiences that influenced my stories were there. Uh, but then I also want to make sure I'm representing other places because I, whenever you watch movies, it's always like LA and New York. <laughs> it's not like, there's nowhere else that exists in America. So I want to make, like, I want to be aware of that and also include that in my stories as well. And it's just like my experience as a black woman reading comics and not seeing myself in them as much as I want and should. Um, it's super important for me to make sure that I'm working with women of color and also they're featured in my stories. Like that's what I, what, that's why I create is for like myself and people like me to feel like comforted that they see somebody who looks like them or has similar experiences. Um, and also to educate other folks too. Like it's been interesting because a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from Wash Day, of course like the black women understand it, but white, some white guys were just like, I had no idea. Like I've learned so much and I'm like, that's awesome. Now you know how much effort goes into hair um, that can go into black hair. Um, so it's it's like I want it for people to, for like black women to be able to relate, but also for it to be a learning experience for others who yes. are open to learning. And when it comes to publishing, um, are there any challenges that you guys have faced? And is there any advice you can give others that are looking to publish their graphic novel? Okay. You could start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, man, um, don't do it. Any challenges? No, I, I, the one thing I will say, and I, I've said this a lot to a lot of people, if you are going into this for money, don't. <laughs> do anything else. You could have a hot dog cart. You open a hot dog cart out here, you'll, you'll make more money. Uh, it, this is not a, a money-making venture. Can it be? Yes. I mean, it, you know. We've seen the films in the movie theaters. They're 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 out doing everything. That that you know, you go to Disney now. You see all the stuff, everything else. Yes, there's there's money in there, but the chances of that, even if you're good, are slim to none. Mm -hmm. You do it because you really want to tell that story. You really want to draw. Because the other side of it too is like I tell people, you know, it takes me a day to do a page of comics. It takes me about eight to ten hours between like penciling, this and that. That's after I figured out the script, I figured out this, I figured out that, and I laid it out. It takes me a day. So if, I, if it takes me a day and it's a 22-page book, that's like a month of work. Yeah. So if you're gonna put a month of work into something and then you're gonna go sell it, how much should you get back? I mean, it's gonna be a really hard thing. But what's awesome, and it's happened to me, is having somebody come by and 10 years later, 12 years later, after a book, they come out and like, oh, I remember when you did this, and I really like it. Or I'm at a con, and I had a, a gentleman come with an anthology from 20 years ago oh, wow. that I did eight pages in. He's like, can you sign it? And I'm like, yeah, who am I not to sign it? Like, am I, but that to me is amazing, because that's somebody that's been following my work. Mm -hmm. So it's that, the, 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 it's not for money, and, and also it's perseverance. It's, uh, the other side is you have to keep doing it. 
A lot of people want to do that first book and, all right, back up the truck of money and everything's going to be awesome. It's not like that. You, you know, who are you? What have you done? You know, you're as good as your last project. And if you don't get that next thing out and the next thing out and be consistent, you're not, you're not going to make that fan base. You know, I always tell people you have to be consistent. You have to be on it. Yeah, I echo all of that. Also, it's just reinforcing. You have to really be passionate about it because it's going to take time. It's going to take money. And um, yeah, if you don't, if you, if your heart isn't in it, it'll show in the work. And also, like, you just will probably stop. <laughs> it's a lot of work, and and comics are expensive. Like, as coming from the writer, I'm paying artists, so I need to have that disposable income to be able to pay artists. Or, you know, with the help of Kickstarters and crowdfunding now, I can get people to help, you know, pre-order work to help me fund it. But even that in itself is a lot of work, like creating Kickstarter campaigns and promoting them. Like, you have to become, you're not just a creator, you have to become a business person, marketer, learn about, like, a lot of numbers, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of, like, a lot of that stuff is involved, and you don't want to mess up. Um, but, yeah, it's... Passion's number one, yeah. for sure. I hate spreadsheets <laughs> with a passion. Oh my god! And I have to look at spreadsheets all the life. time now, and I'm like, why? <laughs> like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I have to look at a spreadsheet now. How many backers did I get? Did I mail it out to that guy? Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I would say this: you're gonna have your doubts. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I've been in this almost 20 years, and. I have a modicum of success and I have my doubts. I, I do sit there in my studio going, what am I doing with my life? Like, why am I doing this? And, and hitting walls and, and, and failing bad. There's been times that we have been like, wow, are we gonna get up from this, you know? And you take a breather, you walk away for a little bit and then you just go, yeah, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. I can't, I can't. This is something I really love to do. So it's like, all right, this sucks. All right, well, whatever. We're gonna have to like work a couple <laughs> extra shifts and pay this off. but. You know, on to the next thing. Exactly. So I, I want to move this now to some Q&A because all of you guys probably have some questions for them and we can kind of keep the conversation going that way. So who would like to ask a question to, to these lovely <laughs> artists? Yes. I have a burning question, I'm sorry. And uh, I think it's funny that one says that he hates spreadsheets because <laughs> my question is about that. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and of course it doesn't have to go into details, mm -hmm. but to give a general idea. Mm -hmm. Let's say that we are at the point where we have something ready. Mm -hmm. Although you don't have something ready, we are well right on the notice as well, but we into a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And we want an idea of what we're going in terms of how much money we're going to be spending mm -hmm. to a self-publishing. So, would you give us like a general idea of what we should consider to put on that spreadsheet and um, how much money it might take, um, the minimum we can put and the maximum that, well, there's a maximum, but the average um, mm -hmm. money that we can expect to spend if we're doing the whole thing out of pocket. Mm -hmm. There's so many aspects to that. That's the thing that's like, depends the artist and everything else, but I mean. Yeah, you know. tons of spreadsheets. Um, and it's really thinking of every little detail, mm -hmm. down to like um, the labels that you put on packages. Um, it's like I could just run off a list of like, I'm seeing my spreadsheet in my head of things I needed to research for the Kickstarter campaign. 
and you need to know how much it costs to print the books. Mm -hmm. um, knowing how much it costs at different level of uh, different print run levels, so maybe 300, 500, 1,000, just so you are aware, because uh, the more you print, the cheaper it costs per book. Um, and you know any sort of slipcases you need for the comics, mm -hmm. boxes, printing, like include everything. If you need a printer, include that in there. Include the ink, include the paper, um, because all that comes, like all that's good. You have to, to factor it in. Or else like all those little things will add up in the end. Tape. It could be a couple hundred dollars. Tape. Tape. Just every, tape. Every little <laughs> just detail. Tape. Shipping. Just tape. Shipping. Um, it's, it's a lot. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot. It's mostly like, the packaging is, is the stuff that you can really get lost in because there's a lot of things mm -hmm. you just don't realize. Um, but outside of, of course, paying your artists, um, if you need to get a subscription for like stamps.com or you need to get web hosting for your Uline, shop. use Uline, that's another one. If you want to buy like a bunch I of- I do want to mention, I think I heard the Uline founder or whoever it has like Nazi ties, so. Really? Do some Googles. I avoid Uline because of that, but it's up to everybody else. Just to know what you're getting yourself into. Um, well, good to know. Good yeah, to know. it's good to know. I mean, I use Amazon, which is like, come on, it's Amazon. They're not much better. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, do some, yeah. I heard some I international heard. conglomerate or something yeah, is doing something. Yeah, for everybody's bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> but as far as artists, there's there's a lot of factors in that, and I would say this is where you have to wheel and deal. And my partner John Ayu is very good at that. There's been times that we sit there and we hear him on the phone. Like, we're all next to his office like, because he'll be talking to an artist. He'll be talking to somebody who's a big name. And we're like, oh, he might do a cover for us. And we're like, oh, man, dude, like, you know, whatever. And he's like, $2,000, $2,000 for a cover. Are you crazy? He's like, well, like, he'll be back and forth. And, but we're friends with people and we look at timeline because that's the other thing. Um, is that person doing a page a day for you, a, two, uh, a couple pages a week for you? Is it something you have to be done in a certain amount of time? Because some artists, if you give them enough room, they'll be willing to charge less because they can go at a slower pace and at their leisure. You have to be on them though. Like I say, don't ever pay anything up front. Everything is by deposits. Hey, every four pages, here's this much, you know? Um, on average, I, we've gotten artists to do just pencils, $20 a page. Uh, an artist to do all the work, and this is somebody that's an amateur, never been published before, and may not be that good. But we'll sit there with them and we'll work something out and look at their work. I've had whole books done that we've rejected because the artwork wasn't up to snuff. You know, we, in the end we're like, you know what, it's not up to snuff. We have to reject this. It might be $400 down the drain for that. But, and I'm not, and I'm never gonna, I, I tell a lot of people the same thing, hey, we can't pay a lot, but we pay. Like, I tell people all the time, like, I've never stiffed anybody and everything. Else. Now that they say, hey, those guys creatures are kind of cheap. Yeah, we are. Sorry. <laughs> like, you know, we have, you know, it's hard for us to make our ends meet. But I offer other things. So I say sometimes with artists that work with us, I go, hey, we're going to be at New York Comic Con. Do you want to sit with us at the, at the table? We'll get you a pass. I had an artist, uh, an anchor from one of my books come in, and he, we're walking, and he sees Neil Adams. And he's like, is that Neil Adams? I'm like, yeah, you want to meet him? Come on. And I go, hey, Neil, like, talk to this guy. And he's like, oh, my God. Like, he thought it was the biggest deal. It's not. I know the guy because of the road, but it impressed him. But he felt good about it because he got something back. Because it's sometimes not just the bottom line, but the experience. They want to have their book out. They want to have their name in a book. They want to have it at a con. When you sit down and I made him sign books because their customers buying it, and it's like, hey man, we got to sign books. It was the artist. I was the writer on the book. It was the artist and the inker who were signing books, and there was a line of people buying. He felt amazing. 
and he got to have a picture, show his parents. So there's that exchange. There's that other exchange that you can do. But you have to bring it, though. You have to be able to bring it, and you have to, you know, give that back to somebody. Um, so there's that other side of it, too, that's not just the bottom line. Because if you have the money, then you can get anybody. I mean, Sam Keith is one of my favorite artists. He's the creator of the Max. I had a chance for him to do a cover of one of my books. And then they said, oh, he'll do it for 2000 I was like, I gotta find the money under the under 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 the earth or something. I had to like find, it. and I couldn't at the time. I just couldn't do it. There's no way around it. And then by the time I could, and I went to call him back, he was already working on a project for DC, and I lost the chance. And a lot of people told me he's like, dude, that would have been a gold mine. Like you would have sold five thousand copies right there just for him doing the cover, but it didn't happen. So that's the long run of it too. So yeah, and you have to look at it on your return because sometimes a book, a lot of times you won't see a return for six months to eight months. You're not going to see real money come in at all six months to eight months later because between the distributor, this and this and that. So that's the thing you have to look at. So I tell sometimes for writers that are looking for artists and if you want to do something, you know, you got to – the other exchange is promotion. And the best promotion is anybody but you <laughs> because if it's a, oh, I'm the best artist in the world, no one uh, – but if there's somebody else advocating for you and is out there talking about you, that's a great advertisement. So that's another way you can give back to the artist because they're going to be nailed to a drafting table drawing the whole time. I want to um, like it. I want to make it clear too that like a lot of things artists get from people who want their work or want to work with them is like, oh, I won't pay you. This is just for exposure, which I think is wrong. Like you yeah. got to pay people no matter what. Like mm -hmm. don't yeah. do that. Yeah, that's the, come on, in the <laughs> minimum, I'm going to still pay, pay him something. Yeah. I've had artists even refuse and say, no, man, don't pay me. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no. Yeah, no. No, bro. Like, we're yeah, we're going to have it because even legally, no I want to be in, yeah. in the right with you. Mm -hmm. I want to be okay because I'm an artist myself too. So I'm a writer and artist. So I know what it is to work for a publisher and everything else and be waiting for money. So mm -hmm. I know, and, and time is money, and I don't want to do that to anybody. But yeah, yeah that exposure bit, it's been around for ages. Yeah. There are people out there that are good about it. They will help you. There is a good exchange. Talk to other people. We all talk. When you go to a comic when we go to a book convention, we all talk. And I'm, I'll literally say, like, you know, I need somebody to letter this book. Uh, and so-and-so came by. And yeah. I could get a glowing review or I could get a bad review. And sometimes people will say, oh, he's a cool guy, but he's always late on deadlines. Or, hey, he's super cheap, but it works kind of, eh. Or, this guy's golden. Or, don't work with that guy. That guy is just horrendous. Any other questions from the, from the crowd right now? Yes. Um, have you ever experimented with different art styles before the past? Like, if you ever wanted to uh, think about doing realism, and then at another point you decided to go for more cartoon style comic. And if so, would you recommend experimentation with newer artists? All the time. You should be doing it all the time. I mean, each project's its own way. For me, every project's its own thing. When I was doing, I was doing Vigil for, for Graphic Smash, it was like I was drawing the characters, but the backgrounds were all photographic. So they're photographs of Miami. So like Miami-Dade College was like on fire in the background. So like I took a picture and then I like literally burned the paper and then I put some paint on it, then I did some other stuff. It looks like a, a, a ransom note, but it worked for, for what it was. Um, meanwhile, like Zombie Years was a little bit more honed, a little more straighter because I'm trying to tell a dramatic story. 
you know, Tommy's all over the place. People say it looks like Art Crumb, it looks like this. So that's my more cartoony style because I love like Chris Freeling and old Looney Tune cartoons. So I think it depends on the story and you should always be trying to find the next thing. We were talking about doing photo comics, having actors and having people pose for us with lighting and everything and take photographs and then use that either digitally or by hand, draw them out. Um, there's some great books like Ex Machina by Brian K. Vaughan that he did that. You know, that's one experiment. But I think you should always be experimenting. That's something you always, but then once you get a formula, stick to it throughout the book. Any other questions? Yes. Um, you you asked uh, how the background informs their work, and you know, you said Bob's going to have black women front and center. This question is for everyone in the room, actually, because uh, uh, you guys know uh, Tony and Amy is children of blood. Very well. When she came to Books and Books, she said that when she first started writing, all of her, because she's a big sci-fi fan, all of her protagonists were all white or mixed race. It wasn't until she started Children of Blood and Bone that she's just like, I'm going to lean into my background. This woman's going to be, and I, that struck such a chord with me. And I don't know, I don't know if it's because I'm older, because I see some, I see a, a diverse level. I'm just wondering if y'all have problems centering yourself in stories, or if that's just because you're younger, it's just a given. <laughs> I think it's all uh, for me it comes down to application I mean it does like for a story sometimes it's very clear in my head who I want there and when and how but the other side of it would be you know what do I know and how do I do it because this also the, is the worry I have sometimes when I write a character that I don't have anything in common with I, I mean I had to f write a, a female Haitian lead in, in zombie years and I, I grew up around Haitians. I was in the Haitian community a lot, when I was, especially when I was at Northwestern. Uh, so I knew a lot about it. I had friends over there and everything. I'm like, do I know enough to be writing, first off, a female as a male? And another thing is the Haitian community. But it's, that's where you go and say, all right, then let me find out. Let me go talk to some people and find out and everything else. So, and, and then I go, you know, it's because I wanted to tell, there's four main characters in Zombie Years, but the fifth character is my aunt. And that was my whole thing. I wanted to show Miami. And Miami is not just Cubans. Miami is not just Latinos. Miami is not just Americans. There's all these people. And that's the whole fun of telling that story. So I go, what's the application? You know? And then if I go, again, and say like a sci-fi story, if there was a Cuban-American lead in that story, what's the application of it? Other than the name. Is it just like, oh, someone, uh, Agent Martinez, and that's it? <laughs> Or is it because something of their background or something in their attitude or their approach is going to inform the story and do something? Well, to, to me, when she said that, I realized that there was this uh, short story I was struggling with that I couldn't let go. And, I didn't, and it wasn't really going anywhere. And I realized the reason I couldn't let it go was because I sat down and write down, write whatever came to my, came to my mind. But when I was going to write a reservation story, it would be, I would sit down with that intention in mind. But this story that I'm struggling with and couldn't let go of, it was just the person happened to be Mohawk. It had nothing to do with the actual story. And it was the first time that it was like, I was telling a generic, just family, although you can't really do that in divorce the two, but it was just a generic, uh, like a business struggle between these two brothers. That 
was out, you know, he, he, he poured himself capsicum before he grabbed your controls. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, how do you include that yeah. story that yeah. doesn't... And it's, and it's funny you bring that up because it's something that uh, a lot of the times there's always that, like, token person of color, that token, like, not white man, or, you know, or not white person. And there's nothing about who they are that's related to what their culture is. They're just, you could change their race, their, their gender, whatever, and they're still the same person. And people notice it. Like, especially for me, if I'm watching, like, uh, a zombie apocalypse film or something like that, and there's a black woman, but her hair's straight the whole time, I'm like, where is she getting her hair done? <laughs> like, where is this happening? Yeah. Or they go to sleep and they don't have a bonnet on or their hair's not wrapped, I'm like, that would not happen. Like, there yeah. is very rare a black woman's going to hair with her hair out. That's just not... Oh, I, I, and it, it takes <laughs> me out of it, and that's something that happens for, you know, any sort of person from different backgrounds. They're like, that's not realistic. Yeah. So, But it's the effort. It's something that, like, you, you don't have to do. Like, creators don't have to create diverse stories, but it is responsible for them to do so. Like, it, you should do it, but you don't need to. If you, like, there is this, like, there is this worry that you may represent somebody inaccurately, but you have to put in the effort to, like, try to learn. There's people who you can hire as sensitivity readers, too, to make sure, like, mm -hmm. there's nothing you're doing that's offensive. Like, it just takes more work, and people don't want to put in the work, or they're too scared mm -hmm. that they might do something bad, and um, that's kind of why we end up with, you know, most of the stories that we do is because most of the people who have the privilege to be creators are straight white men, and they're writing what they know, which is also other straight white men. So, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny to think about what you said about sensitivity readers. We get a lot of requests for sensitivity readers, mm -hmm. and at first, um, it was just like um, people writing, maybe, uh, we, we had a lot of um, Caucasian writers asking us to read their text to see if they were depicting black people well, but then we started getting a lot of requests from black people mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to make the character, more, the black characters in their own books um, more than just a cliche and kind of give them developmental guidance. And a lot of them um, did that because of something Erin um, kind of touched on, the fact that Growing up, they read so many books that had nothing to do with themselves that they kind of lost that innate ability to talk about themselves. I so find that so fascinating because I guess maybe I'm an older generation, and as far as for ourselves, we don't care about any of that, that stuff. The reason being is not the de insensitive and not the right. racist, racist, but it's one of those things where. I think we came from a time when we were watching a lot of like Spike Lee movies and a lot of the stuff that was going on. And it was about being, let's be insensitive. Let's say these wrong things so we can have a dialogue. And when I hear this, it just sounds like this self-censoring thing. And I know it's a different climate now and it's a different thing. I'm not trying to be the old guy going, meh. But it's one of, <laughs> part of me is just like, man, what? Because I hear this and I'm just like, Dude, write the damn thing. Let it get out there. And if somebody likes it, good. Let's have a talk. Let's sit down and say, how did I mess up? You know, how did I mess up? Let's talk about it. But there's this damning thing. I wouldn't confuse sensitivity reading 
likely to do something they see, though. Mm -hmm. If you're writing a character who's a lawyer and you're not a lawyer, you're going to send it to a lawyer to say, hey, this is law shit. Yeah. 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 If you're yeah. a doctor, you're going to send it to a doctor because you don't know yeah. what, what mm -hmm. a cavity smells like when you, when you saw something that happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're going to ask a doctor for that. No, that's a so very good point. Then on that level, yeah. And there are people who do, who do everything right, who have the sensitivity, sensitivity readers that they work with that are in-house, and then put out some arcs, and the young adult bloggers are still yeah. confident because they're still, uh, they still fail some. So the dialogue does... No, I, I, and, and I agree with you. I mean, I've done the same thing, like I said. I had to write a, a female Haitian lead. I sat down with my friend Jude Million, who's a, a comic book artist here, Haitian background. I go, dude, does this sound right? Am I, did I spell this right? What's going on here? And, you know, you know I've obviously clarified. Um, but I feel that there is this, I don't know, like this over mechanic that's there that can kind of cleanse and kind of like turn something very sterile. And that's where I really go, oh, you know. Okay, but I think, I think that there's also this sense of like a good faith effort was made. Like, yeah. because yeah. that's the thing too, is that every, people will come for you for whatever, you know? And like this is, um, when Jamila was talking about um, uh, uh, the points you were making that you were like talking about, I thought Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm. Because Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, if nobody's watched it, is this, procedural comedy com like comedy cop show. Mm -hmm. But it like hooked everybody, not because like just because the, the actors are good or whatever, but because there was so much representation happening in the same show in a way that wasn't overt and in a way that isn't in your face like we're being super PC, so we've got a gay black cop as a it's just he's he's Captain Holt, he's hilarious. Um and then he happens to be gay. And and in the same show, you know, you've got you've got multiple black characters, you have multiple Latina characters, mm. you have um, you know, I argue that Jake Peralta is Cuban Jewish. He's Jewish <laughs> for sure, but Peralta, like I'm like, he has to be, like there has to be some whatever. But like, okay, so going back to like this whole sensitivity read, you can have somebody read for sense and still upset people. Mm -hmm. No two Haitian people are like so even oh, yeah. if you're going to your Haitian friend, mm -hmm. there are Haitians who can, don't even mention voodoo around them because they, they don't leave the room. Like, it is not something that... Oh, my main thing was getting the insults right. That was, like, my main is. thing. I was like, dude, did I insult him right? Did I spell that there was the right dash where it needed to be? <laughs> but, like, I think there's a big difference between, like, if I find out that somebody took the time to have somebody read it, you know, like, as an example, like, non-binary, trans, like those kind of gender issues, there may still be things that the community may not agree with, but you made the good faith effort to try and represent them as faithfully in your media, you know, as as you could. So I don't think that it's necessarily like, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the sterility thing, but like I'm all for sensitivity figures. I'm all for somebody from the community. Um, I really like Cora. Um, I like, like, there was this, um, person the other day I get the email like whatever and they were asking about um, Navajo like they wanted to translate um, of all things the Mormon Bible to Navajo mm -hmm. and there was like this huge response on Quora from all of these Navajo speakers who were like hey so don't do that <laughs> we're not going to do that like you could probably find 
some person who'd be willing to work with you, but there's such a history mm -hmm. in the community with missionaries and what happened back in the day that you should probably think about like just keeping it in English or whatever, dude, and like, and I, I, I don't know, I just feel like when you start talking about these really big cultural things that we may not be aware of, especially in media, um, because like Aaron and I were talking about how you can get surprised by stuff, like you can get surprised and wounded by, by things that you consume because it's a really private thing. You never want someone to feel betrayed halfway through the book because you realize that they don't think of you as the same or they didn't care to take the time to learn, you know. Um, I think, I think it has to do with uh, verisimilitude, and and part part of it is, uh, I mean, you, you can take you can take the default function, which is white culture, and say, you know, I really don't care, right, and and and, and push go, but if you do it that way, you're going to invariably alienate mm -hmm. someone in a minority. A brother wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or no. no, and especially look, as a, a Cuban Mexican, believe me, right. yeah. I've seen every sombrero okay. joke and well, everything uh, there is. Uh, uh, let me give you another way. Uh, it's like it's like when it's like in in uh, is it narco when 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 uh, he starts cursing in real Colombia. But see, with Narcos, what's funny is this. You know what's insulting about that show? That they're celebrating a murderer. Yeah. They're celebrating, but the same way they do with Sony Soprano. Right. The same way they turn. Like, so that's the fun of it, and I don't care. That's fine. Right. You right. know, I, I just say, because I come from also a comedy background and everything else. Right. And our whole thing is just be like, it's funny. It's funny. Differences. And to me, the best thing against racism is to see how ridiculous it is. Because it's uninformed and stupid. Yes, it it's is. somebody that doesn't know. So right. when you make fun of it and you show it, but it's hilarious. But there's a, also, like, I think with comedy, too, which is a good way to draw the line, is like, are you punching up or are you punching down? Right? Oh, yeah. that, but there's that intonation. Writing too, you there's know? that intonation. There's, there, there's always that thing that makes you know. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some way, like, I've seen it, again, like I say, I've seen enough sombrero jokes and all the little Mexican things and everything. Mm -hmm. But by the time you have like Warner Brothers that won't show a Speedy Gonzalez cartoon anymore. I'm like, that guy was awesome. Like he won <laughs> against the cat. Why can't I see that? You know? And for most Mexicans, we don't care. The guys that came to picket that, they didn't, they were able to not work <laughs> and go picket. The rest of us had to work. So there's that other, other side of it too. I'm not against any of the, what's going on. And actually, I find it incredibly informative you guys are informing me. Mm -hmm. This is not me like fighting like the, the, the fight for that. Mm -hmm. But I just find it amazing because that's just a whole other layer. Yeah. That's a new layer, new mechanic. So does anybody have another question? Because I wanted to kind of move this into the creator collaboration part of mm -hmm. the process since we're here. Um, does anybody have another question for them about what we've spoken about today? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so with this discussion of sensitivity reading and things like that, um, I, I, I watch and I feel a lot of different stuff. So I understand that maybe sometimes you have to go that far and have to mm -hmm. be sensitive. 
do you think that you as artists, maybe with all this fear due to sensitivity, is gonna have to, like, are you worried or are you okay with it? Like, do you think that it's gonna stop you from being able to do something for your ultimate artistic goal? For example, uh, the movie Blazing Saddles. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, uh, if you watch the documentary, one of the guys that used the N-word the most, he said, like, I didn't, I never felt comfortable using that word, but I'm an actor, this is my worst thing, and I was told that it wasn't gonna be, you know, used in this connotation, and ultimately, it, it isn't. But that movie would never get made today, no matter who was directing it. It can barely be shown today. No, it's only on like Amazon, you know that it's like Times that we have a joke on the table or writing something, and we're kind of like, we're going cut the floor with this one. And I was just like, oh, I own a comic book shop too, so I look at what's on the stands and I look at what people are doing, and sometimes I'm like, I'm pretty tame to what some people are doing. I'm not, you know, I'm not breaking any boundaries. And my whole thing is like, you know, and one of these things are that the intonation, that way you're saying something, the way are you punching up or punching down, that's a real thing too. Um, is it a, just a dumb joke for a dumb joke, or is it something that's going to get a real laugh? So that's the only thing. I don't think I'm too sensitive to it, and maybe that's a problem, and it could get me in trouble in the future. But I really am like, I'd rather make it, and then, what is it? I'd rather beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> you know? Um, I, I think it, for me, I am trying to create work and create characters intentionally and uh, that are not represented. So the platform that I have now with you know people who read my comics, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to include others who don't have that same platform. So whether I'm creating a trans character or a disabled person, those are experiences that I don't have. But I think because of all this, uh, there's more sensitivity and I think and I don't know if it's that people are, are more sensitive now, or it's just that we have the internet so we can share how we are offended right. more. It's not <laughs> you know that the world is more crazy. Yeah. It's just that we're now aware we're of it. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. police brutality. Like, that is nothing new, but we have phones now that we can record these videos. Right. So it's like, I think because 
voices are able to be louder because mm -hmm. of the internet. Um, it's made me more aware and more aware of the voices that need to be heard more and the resources that I can look for to make sure that I'm representing these people uh, in a respectful way, in an authentic way. Of course, you don't want to have these like, you know, two-dimensional stereo characters because you're scared of doing something that isn't quite right. You don't want, I don't want to do that either. Um, but I will like put forth the effort to make sure that um, I'm doing the best that I can as a creator. So I'm not um, nervous. I think I'm just more, I just try to be more sensitive because I see myself misrepresented all the time or not represented at all. I don't know what's worse. So I think because of my own experiences, I'm more sensitive automatically to others. Um, and yeah, yeah. Awesome, so that leads towards creator collaboration. Um, I feel like as artists, you need to um, definitely um, collaborate with others. Mm -hmm. Like it's a community, it's, it's all about collaboration. So what are some ways you guys have found artists to collaborate with or writers or you as a writer? Like yeah. how have you guys found ways to collaborate with your stories? Um, to find to, as a writer for mm -hmm. comics, like I wanna maybe only write comics. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't have stories that I'm like, oh maybe it could be a comic like. No, I wanna write comics because I love comics and mm -hmm. I want my stories to be in this medium that I feel uh, could use them. And so the internet's great, of course. Um, I do, I follow a lot of creators, so they end up sharing work of others, so that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Hashtags, are, there's so many hashtags that are out mm -hmm. there um, that artists use that you can use to find them. Um, but if you wanna work locally, um, I would say conventions are great, going down to all the sorts of conventions that are out here, walking down Artist Alley, seeing whose artwork really matches your story, you know, creating a, a relationship with them and, and all that kind of stuff, buying their work, because you may like a print that they did, but then your, the sequential work may not be, you know, what you want. So you gotta make sure that you really like their work and it fits your story. Um, there are online databases too, um, where artists, have you know you could just find tons of artists deviant art like it's been around for ages mm -hmm. it's really easy to find you know different artists there as far as like a suggestion too that i would say when i'm looking for people to work with like have a portfolio like you can <laughs> make so a important. free website mm -hmm. like have if you're an artist make a website i don't care if it's like a wordpress dot whatever your name is dot com like it is so important. Don't just use your Instagram as your portfolio and have your contact information available somewhere. Because there's so many people who are really talented and I'm like, oh, I'd love to work with this person, but I can't find more of their work and I don't know how to talk to them other than trying to send them a DM. And that's, yeah. So, I mean, if you're not interested in working with people, then I guess it doesn't matter. But that's like number one, have a portfolio for sure. And it doesn't cost you money. You can have free websites, you know. Um, that's yeah. That's kind yeah. of how I've been finding artists. I, and I would say if you're if you're starting out, find an artist that's starting out with you. You know, if you're working at that same level, it might be okay. The guy's not Jim Lee. The guy's not an amazing artist. Uh, but you're not. Maybe you're not an amazing writer. <laughs> you know, like so. You guys are working at the same time and working together. And when you're collaborating, listen to them because yeah. that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of times, especially. With a writer, you want to be the director, you're the producer, and this and this and this. 
But you know, the artist might say, hey, what if we did this in nine panels instead of six? What if we did this as a spreadsheet? You know, that, that word, collaborate, is a mm -hmm. big deal. So when you have that situation, you work with them. And so sometimes there's somebody you can meet, and I would say, again, conventions, go to your local comic book shop, talk mm -hmm. to them, leave a flyer, leave a business card, see what's, maybe they have a bulletin board, like we have one, like you can pin your card on there if somebody looking. And when they come in and they're saying, you, you talk to them, and maybe you can't work with together right now, but six months down the road, they have a chance and this and that. And if you're doing a project, you have an idea, try to do it small, try to do eight pages. Because everybody has this 1100 page saga epic <laughs> that goes through four generations. If you have that eight page book, like an eight page little window that led to that world, that's easier for an artist to chew on and say, all right, I'll get eight pages to you than, you know, again, you're. 8,000 page, yeah. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude in yeah, Space, there we go. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely trusting the artist or your collaborator is super important. For me, I'm, it's, you know, you create a story and you think it's going to turn out one way, but most of the time an artist can make it better. Um, so it's like trusting the artist. Of course, if it's something you really don't like, it's fine, but um, I think it's like you want to work with this person for a reason and you think they're talented. In the other, you know, working with somebody who's on your same level is good. Um, also, as a writer, because they're often more affordable, um, and you don't want to bargain down because that's not right. So, yeah. if they're, if you want to work with somebody who's not within your budget, don't just save. You know, maybe it's a goal for later on, um, and you can afford it when you put out some more work. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is something else that I was going to say, but I forgot. <laughs> but yeah. And when it comes to publishing, um, do you guys have any advice when it comes to people looking to publish their own work? And maybe some general overall tips that you want to give people that are looking that might have ideas yeah. and might want to submit those ideas to get published. Mm. Maybe it's the self-publishing route, maybe it's um, those pitches, like pitching to someone. Like what advice do you have for, for the audience? I've never pitched. Mm -hmm. um, I've. I probably will one day, but mm -hmm. right now I don't have the desire to. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the thing that I always see is like follow the directions to the T. Like you don't want to not get accepted for something because you didn't follow the directions, not because of like the work isn't good. Um, have you pitched to anything? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too many times. <laughs> um, no, the the pitching thing it all depends. Um, th there's two factors to it. A lot of times getting the right person. Sometimes people just do these blind submissions and you send it in and it's just going to end up in somebody's email box and, or on a, and if you mailed it in in some pile somewhere and good luck if anybody ever sees it. Um, and I will tell you as a publisher, it's the same thing. Um, as a publisher, I have people like, I have an idea for a story. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to look at it. I, do you have pages? Do you have it done? I have a script. I don't want to see a script. Do you have it done? No? Check back with me when you're done. That's the main thing I tell people. We want to see a finished product. Yeah. Because even if it's, a, even if say it's inked pages, but you don't have it lettered, all right, cool. Where's your script? Where's your pages? Let me look at it. Oh, that's kind of interesting. That's, uh, what's this about? Blah, 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 blah. There's something to work off of. But I got an idea in my head is not a pitch. Um, be clear and concise. Um, mm -hmm. You've got to sell it to the person. And you have, a, have to have a beginning, middle, and end. Because if you're sitting there going, and then, well, it'll be continued. I don't want to hear that. I have to know the end of this, what's going to happen in every book. <laughs> um, some people got away with that. Uh, Robert Kirkman, Walking Dead, was supposed to be five issues. Oh, wow. Was supposed to be five issues. He lied. Yeah. 
and I the end of fifth issue. <laughs> yeah, he said he said the fifth issue was supposed to like oh the big reveal was that it was supposed that. to be aliens yeah. and it was supposed to be aliens at the fifth issue. Oh my and God. then he was like, nope. And then he Why just submitted the sixth issue, that, and yeah. Jim Valentino, the publisher, was like, "There's a sixth issue," but it was doing so well by then that they said, "Okay, you can. You have to be Robert Kirkman to do something like that." A lot of times for a publisher, we have to know what's going to happen. You can't come in with an idea and a kind of sorta. I would say be very clear and concise. Yeah. Um, as far as self-publishing goes, I mean, there's all different sorts of routes you could take. There's web comics, which do really well, but you need to build an audience, which is a lot of work, and it's something that's like a slow grind. Um, you have to put in the time and effort to build uh, an audience, a community, engage with people online in order to have people there when you share your work. They're there, you know, ready and waiting. Um, but web comics is something you can often do as far as like putting it out. You can do it free depending on what sites. I've even seen people put web comics on Tumblr. Um, so you don't have to spend a lot of money outside of creating the work. Um, and that can go on for a really long time or it can go on, it could be a short, you know, kind of thing. You can release your work digitally for free. Um, you can have it online only um, if you want because if you can't mm -hmm. afford to you know, print your work, you can have it, you can put on Comixology, submit for free. Mm -hmm. um, I always, I would recommend, like, do that off bat, like, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, um, digital comics, there hasn't been a big player yet, even within Marvel, with DC, there hasn't been anybody that made the millions off digital comics, but it's growing, it's been growing steadily for six years. Yeah, there's so no reason to not. Yeah, it's you know. like when people ask that, like, what's the best media? It's like all of them. Do all yeah, of them all as much as you can. Yeah. There's a there's a web, great um, app and website called Line Web Two, yeah. and they've done really well. They've been showing up at cons and everything else. It's great. It's a website to read the comics, and there's an app also. Mm -hmm. It's a formatting issue. It's a little weird because you will have to format your comic a certain way because if you want it to be readable on a phone, it's not gonna mm -hmm. gel that well. But once you do it, it has a very good following. They work on a Patreon system for support, but I've seen some people walk away very well with that, so it can work really well, and it is a way of getting a new audience. Like, uh, we were talking about Kickstarter before. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about Kickstarter, you gain an audience on Kickstarter. There are people just on Kickstarter looking for comics to get into. So you have to look at each venue as a way of getting fans. And there, you're gonna have your digital fans, you're gonna have your print fans, you're gonna have everything else, but there's different ways. Yeah. Um, but the least overhead is probably webcomics, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And for printing, I would say in, like, you can take pre-orders is a good way to like get money in advance for, uh, for printing. But also Kickstarter, of course, like there's just, you could do a whole panel on Kickstarter. Cause it's a, mm -hmm. I think a couple of things people misunderstand mm -hmm. is like they'll hear the success stories, but a lot, like, a lot of work has been put into making it successful. Kickstarter is like, a part-time job sometimes feels like a full-time yeah. job. It's a lot, uh, it's a lot of research in advance. It takes months to plan mm -hmm. a lot because you're talking about like getting people's money. You don't want to mess this up because mm -hmm. uh, that could really first it's wrong, but also like ruin your reputa reputation. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to make sure you have you know you get the funding that you need um, and you market it well. Uh, it's it's a lot. Like it's there's. Yeah, there is a whole. Kickstarter, we can yeah, Kickstarter you have to have a, a complete project. That's it's one thing for sure. Yeah. Like a lot of people want to go there, at least as far as the idea and what it is and your pages. Like you mm -hmm. got to show as much as possible. Yep. 
you know, the beginning is beautiful. Like the beginning, you're like, oh, look, all these people are giving money. And then, you know, like, it's a month long and that sludge in the yeah. middle, you're like, oh, my God, they hate me. <laughs> and then in the end, uh, yeah. you know, is the, the successor die, you yeah. know? It's if, two different things. If your project's finished, that's even better. But I would say don't don't do a Kickstarter unless your project's like halfway done. Yeah. At least. That no matter what, if it fails, you're gonna finish it. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like it's... you have the money to finish it at least, but like you can start it in the middle of it, and you have work to show. You have artwork to show. You can like that's what I did with a wash day. Wash day was gonna be done a month after the Kickstarter is done, maybe less. Um, but I had a lot of artwork that was already done in advance, so mm -hmm. it shows people, like, I've invested my own money into this already, so I have, like, skin in the game, and now I need your help to get it printed. Like, this is going to be done no matter what, but whether I can print it is up to you. So, um, also, it's just better. People love visuals. Nobody's, you need to make sure your description is good, and you have all the information that's there, but a lot of people don't like to read, so they want to know, like, at the very least, it looks good. Mm -hmm. They don't know if your story is going to be good yet, but at so least it looks injury. really good. Yeah. So having like finished artwork is super important. A good video. Good video. Nice audio. Do a video. Like yeah. do a video. Rehearse that video. <laughs> you may not want to. I hated doing video. I stood in was it Flamingo Gardens in the sun for hours. Jamar <laughs> recorded me. Sweating, like it was crazy. But yeah, now it's, it you have to speak concisely. And, yes, and memorizing. Like, would you like to give to my? Uh, 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 and I don't like <laughs> to be recorded, but yeah. like there's a there's a lot of Kickstarter stats that are out there, and the ones who have videos are funded more than the yep. ones that don't. So do it, even if if you mm. don't think it'll be that good. Yeah, and remember, you don't. It's not about pleading or begging. It's you want the people to be like, yeah, I want in on this. You want people to feel good and be like, yeah, I want to get money to this. This is cool. I want to see this happen. Because even myself, I give money to Kickstarter. So sometimes I see something. I bought some iced coffee thing the other day, and I was just like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, it looks cool. I want another guy. I drink iced coffee all the time at work, and I'll have it in the fridge. And then my friend was like, how much did you spend? Forty bucks? He goes, dude, they have that same thing for twelve bucks. I'm like, yeah, but this one's cool and it's class and it has a thing on the. Shut up. Also. Just like to get dig into Kickstarter more, uh, something, what you want to do is make sure the product that's the most important thing, like a comic probably, you want it available at a reasonable price. Um, you don't want to charge like $50 or more because then, you know, people aren't, they don't want a t-shirt, they don't want a postcard, they want the work. So make sure that that like 30 and under price range, if that's how much you would probably charge for the product. Unless you and have so, high-end. Unless, yeah, unless it's high-end, hardcover, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, like, really think about your rewards. You may just want to throw stuff in there to add more, uh, to add more tiers, but that means more money. Uh, packing can get complicated if you start adding shirts, things like that. Keep it simple if you can. Yeah. Things that are flat. I would say like <laughs> seven, seven to ten rewards, and ten rewards is a lot. I think we did one that was seven, and it was like a breeze. We did one that was like, oh man, this is so great. It was so. And then we did another one that had like fifteen reward oh, wow. tiers, and we're like, wait, this guy wanted the what? And, the <laughs> yeah. and after all, we're like, just put everything just, like, in it. Just, think about oh. what you would want from a Kickstarter. Like, do you care about getting a T-shirt with the artwork on it? Depends on the t-shirt. Most of the time I see they just are trying to fill a void that they think they need to fill, but people just really want the comic. 
for the most yeah. part. And then maybe you can get some upgrades. Well, on the t-shirt front, I would say what happens is somebody just puts the logo on the shirt. Yeah, they are. And, and it's like, eh. But if you had like artwork just for that t-shirt. Yeah. Like we do a lot of original artwork. Yeah. We do sketch covers. And it was from the artist in the studio. So some people will spend $100, $200 on that. So they'll, they'll, they'll because they're getting an original piece from the artist. Yeah. So in that sense. But that's another thing you have to be careful yeah. about. I'll limit it to five. One time I didn't limit it. I had 10 sketch covers to do in a month. So it was just like, ah, yeah. here, you know? Yeah. And she has a question. Yeah. yeah, go for it. Uh, one question about that. T-shirts, honestly, that would get me to spend more money. I have a lot of friends. I know people. <laughs> for example, book oh, nice. uh, fair last year. Mm-hmm. I'm a T-shirt I'm guy. I'm a huge T-shirt guy. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a book, but if you throw on a really cool T-shirt, I would say mm-hmm. no go problem. For it. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, for, like, for example, uh, book fair last year. Mm-hmm. I was uh, just going through looking at the different comic artists and writers and whatnot. I saw uh, Conrad Creary. He had his for uh, Death of Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. The, the one with the, the bloody hand with no skin on it, mm-hmm. the skull. I was like, don't oh, give me yeah, that shirt. Yeah. And because I saw that shirt, I was like, oh, you got one books? Let me buy one books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because of the t-shirt. It calls that attention. That, mm-hmm. that was his book at first, and then I just bought the entire set. Nice. Well, that's a branding that thing. Because that's a branding thing. What happens is that. Yeah. the imagery. You want to be identified with that. It's a branding thing. When you wear that Wakanda shirt that's a Wu Tang mix or anything else, or wear something like that, cool. we identify with that. We're saying, this is us. This is where you have that storm shirt. You go, I identify with yeah. So there's that branding thing. It, it works a lot in film and Kickstarters. A lot of films will have a crew t shirt. Mm-hmm. about for a film oh. so people feel a lot of set, set of files that like that they will make it. <laughs> see what I'm saying so you want that affiliation yeah. and so you walk around so it's like hey man cool show what'd you get well it was a kickstarter and I'm cooler than you so that's awesome that's yeah. awesome yeah yeah until you see the other guy with the shirt and you're like yeah, yeah. <laughs> really good And that's and that leads to personal branding. And I was talking to somebody before about yes, that about yes. branding and, and your look and what you are and what you're doing. That's a big deal. And then developing that and getting that online and when people identify with you and they like your stuff because of that, then Little you go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they it keeps them there. Mm-hmm. It keeps them with you. Anybody yeah. doing stuff right now should know that at least in my group Oh god, they're everywhere. I'm making I'm making it out with for one. The pin world. Yeah. The pin world is growing. Yeah. They're everywhere. Buttons, pins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I had one of the button. They're in the they're in the the apps. It's the thing. Yes. Because my thing with shirts is I love shirts, but then I go in my closet and I'm like, I have a lot getting ready to go to school. Oh, those are nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually picked up a really great comic at MegaCon because 
seen the charm of this girl with like big fluffy hair, and I ended up like finding my way to this person's booth, and it was awesome. I ended up buying her comic, ended up buying both of her comics, and I got a postcard, charm, and stickers, and I was like, yeah. I'm not like anti t shirt. But when you, like, for wash day specifically, I was like, I want just to buy one type of packaging, so I want something flat. The most important thing is printing this comic. When you start, so you have to think, like, do you have the audience to fund a $10,000, $15,000 campaign? If you do, add those, like, awesome extra things that are a little bit more bulky and make shipping. Oh, yeah. Those, it, these things because at the end are the accessories. Yeah. You know, the, the, the main thing is the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you have to think because it adds to your goal. So you want to make sure, like, the most important thing happens. So stretch goals is a good is a good idea for you know if you want to do that but you're not sure if you'll make your goal make it a stretch goal. Yeah. Anybody have any questions about publishing collaboration? Yes. I do have a question about genres in comic books, mm -hmm. and I'm going to explain what I mean. Um, yeah. I'm specifically referring to short forms. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have a comic book out yet. We were talking this morning today with many and Emily, and um, they were discussing how their their the book they were collaborating on was actors a short story, mm -hmm. and um, I'm really interested in the short forms. Um, I have stories about between 500 and 1,000 words, and it got me thinking about how I could convert like, those short stories mm -hmm. into books and um, I just want to know about the state of the publishing in terms of having those kind of ideas uh, very very short comments out there and how are they doing are they doing well in terms of having people read them um, are there anthologies of short mm -hmm. comic stories um, well short comics I guess um, just there's, there's two things with that. Right. One, in general, and especially probably the last 10 years, anthologies do horrible on the market. They do horrible. I don't know if on the writing aspect is the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, they, uh, comic book anthologies, there are, every once in a while, there's one that comes through, sometimes because it has a big name on it, sometimes it's a cover. I Literally, judging a book by a cover, there's those aspects that make it work and make it uh, blow up. But most anthologies do very, very bad. Are you talking about like in... Comic book, in, 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 through distributors? Indie or like mainstream? Indie and mainstream. Okay. Most of them do very bad. There's some that do really well, okay. um, um, but there's few and far between. Most of the time, when I've heard of people publishing and wanting to publish a anthology, a lot of us will grow because we tell them you have to be careful. There's a lot of people they they dig it, and there's people that dig it and they'll buy it, but a lot of times they do not do it too well. Uh, so I would have thought the opposite. I've like, especially on Kickstarter. So I think like with short form, it's probably more popular in the indie scene because publishers aren't gonna like publish really short comics that I know of, mm -hmm. but a lot of people can self-publish, especially because it's cheaper to do. Mm -hmm. um, but anthologies, I find, are really popular, especially with Kickstarter, um, and do really well. And I think even like 
Elements Anthology, Elements Fire Anthology, one at Eisner a month ago or something like that. And um, even, so there's Spike Trot, you know Spike Trotman? So she- Yeah, Spike for many years. Yeah, so she's like created her publishing company like primarily because of Kickstarter. Like she, she gets like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, super successful. Um, but she does a lot of, she does like smut, uh, smut, Peddler anthology, um, erotica. and hmm? erotica. Yeah, erotica. Was, that's what it's called. It's not peddler. Yeah. Um, yeah, and erotica. But I think in like certain niches, they probably do well. I'm not sure which ones you're thinking of, but like especially black and brown anthologies, LGBTQ anthologies. I find they do really well. They make a lot of money on Kickstarter. So those are and there's always anthologies that are out there. Um, they don't pay well uh, because it's ex like they just don't tend to pay well as much as like if you're doing your own. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a good way to get your work out to a large amount of people where you don't have to put any money up front other than your own time. Um, as a writer, you can work with an artist and I find it's easier to find an artist to work on an anthology uh, because they know that they're also getting their work out there to a large amount of people off that. Um, and Sometimes they just want to do the work and they don't want to like create their own story. So um, I would keep your ear out on the street for like mm -hmm. new anthologies. A lot of them have themes, so hopefully it fits into something that you already have going. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not like an expert, but mm -hmm. I see them doing really well um, the only in my thing communities. With, with Spike, she has a great following. She's been doing. I'm not just Spike though. Yeah, but yeah. she has a great following, but. Um, certain niche stuff, like well, when you say yeah. LGBTQ in there, they have a great following, they have a great support system. The thing is, is the end product. I would say what happens is, and, and she's, she's amazing, because she works her ass off. <laughs> but there are a lot of people, when they do anthologies, I just see it from the other end, because as a retailer and a publisher, and I look at the numbers, and what happens is that you can have a great Kickstarter, but remember, a lot of that money is not going to your pocket. You're going to publishing, the printing, the shipping, and next thing you know, you have boxes of those books mm -hmm. sitting in your room, and you're living with it, you know, on there. Then you have to sell it. A lot of comic shops, they will not buy it. I, I will tell you, I'm one of them that I try. I will try it out. I, I they'll say, oh, we'll, we'll sell you five. I'm like, give me three, because it's a very hard sell. Is it because they're very, expensive? Or sometimes it's the expense. Sometimes it's a hard sell. Sometimes it's just they're also the public. It depends on the reading public. Um, Spikes out of Chicago. So like Chicago's a great reading town. Like. I always said, like, you know it's a good reading time when they have a lesbian bookstore. Not a gay bookstore, lesbian bookstore. Like, they have a Mexican bookstore. Not Latin bookstore, because that's how m many people are reading in that town. Um, Miami, you know, has books and books. You know, like, so there's a different, you know, different avenue, you know, like, how, how it is. So, because of the, the different, so you have different backgrounds and different yeah. people buying stuff. So, hmm? <laughs> No, it's awesome. I like it. Thank God we have it, but that's it. <laughs> like, you know? Um, so when you look at the numbers and some of them there, they, they, there's some people that pick it up, but then they get returned. There's a high return rate on them also. So we see a lot of different avenues. When they do well, they do great. But a lot of times we've seen it. Now, if you do have an eight-page short story, you can make a zine. You can make a, a, a small print run of a, of a book. That's another way you can do it. You know, I've been actually finagling that for ideas I have. 
that I wanted to do. Sometimes they're comic strips, and I'm like, I don't want to develop this. I don't want to do anything with this. I just want to tell this one little joke and just put it in a thing. I go, I'll make a zine out of it. And that's, some, that's a trip to Kiko's. You know, so that's one uh, way of doing it. But I, 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 I don't want to be dire about not doing an anthology or anything like that. But even in like literature and everything else, like I've seen a lot of these guys come in, and I, I did an illustration for some places. And you know, I'm like, hey man, what are we doing the next issue? And they're like, no, we're closing shop. Like, oh man, like. So. What about instead of an anthology, um, if you have a collection of short comic tales by the same author, I've seen one, those, yeah. um, creating one book? But, um, that could that be. That's that's that could be an angle too. I, I've actually fathomed that with one property. It's like, what if I had this one property and it's being told by uh, being drawn by five different artists? But it's all the same script, and then it's each. I've, I've fathomed that, you know. We we we've kicked it around the room. It's just planning it. Out. I think it could work, and any of these things could work. I'm I'm just telling you the numbers. In the end, you could be an amazing genius, and you are. You go and put something out there, and you blow all the the stats out of the water. Because if that's what you want to do. I think that's a great way because that's a great way to recruit artists. project now, I think it's com near completion, but it's called Bark Kira, yeah. where they're retelling Akira using Simpson characters. And they did the comic, and now they're doing even animation. And it's all like, again, they would take three minute, three, I think 13 second clips or three, three second clips from the movie, and they divided it up, and people called dibs, and they would <laughs> animate it themselves with the same sound and everything. And it's amazing, because it's a huge collaboration, but CA comes together in this one book. So maybe that is something that could be really, you know, and I've, I've seen art shows about that and everything it's like, else. It's like the ultimate animation and in terms of how often you could possibly, well, mm -hmm. if money is not an issue, how often you could allow. It's like you have, if you have 12 different artists working on 12 different parts, it goes way faster than having one artist working on the entire mm -hmm. project and then you get the other following. And exactly. Cool. This is like in music when like somebody plays Nirvana on the piano, you know, it's like, oh, I never heard it that way. And that's a great way of like trying it out. I love that idea. Awesome. So does anybody have any additional questions today? Yes. Hey, uh, this one's for Juan. So um, since you have the uh, avenue of being a, a publisher and you have a comic store, what is that kind of line where you say, okay, I'm going to sell this and see how it does versus 
Um, really, it's all trial and error. Right now, the way we're doing things is we had a very, I had a, a, some, um, a rough time like three years ago. I had a bunch of stuff happening to me and I had to deal with it and everything else. And so I was away from the company for a little bit. The, the guys were doing a lot of self-funding. We were doing very well. And like I said, we got into some like debt, some bad trouble that we got into some projects. Yeah. We were invited to shows and we show up and they didn't give us our hotel room. And then we had to find out, we did all this stuff. And so we got into some bad parts of it and then we had to work our way out of it. And then I was seeing how the distribution was. And I was just looking at the project and what's the beginning, middle and end of any book and the lifetime that you have on it. Because what's great is that in the end, when you are done, you have this tomb and now you can keep selling it. You just made this property, literally, and now you can keep farming on it. So what happens is that at the end, we try to create as many things in-house. Everything is in-house. We are a group of, of it's three owners. Uh, the comic book shop is four owners. Um, and we look at it as an in-house thing. We have studios and we make it available to these artists. The artists stay with us. In exchange, they create artwork for us. We create different things together. We share creator rights. Uh, creator rights are shared across the board. So. Uh, Tommy is me and John Yua, so both of us have it. Uh, Zombie Years is just me because I'm the writer and creator on it. Uh, Rez is myself and John Del Sneed and some other people on the first one. Uh, now I'm doing it myself. So it's different artists. So then it's about, okay, what's the logistics of it? What are we aiming for? Like if I want to do a 3,000 print run uh, because I want to get into Diamond. Now your first issue, in Di Diamond is the main distributor for all comics in the country. Uh, they get into comic book shops. You wanna, if you have the first issue of a series, and you do it right, and you advertise it, and you talk to comic book shops, and you do all this thing, and you get a good order, you might get 2,000, 3,000. Uh, the first issue of Tommy, I think, got 4,500. And we were like, oh, crap, because we only printed 2,000. <laughs> so, so we're like, oh, what do we do? And we're not gonna get paid in, in 90 days, so I gotta find money. So we had to you know, do various projects and works and everything to get that done. Um, that's the main thing. So right now, our look at it is, Let's do a Kickstarter first. If we get a Kickstarter and we do it well and everything else, we have enough money to make a major print run. And this could be going to China. And we're trying to keep printing in USA or in Canada at the very least, just on ethics, but also uh, based on logistics. Because if you have a bad time in China and there's a, a strike in the harbor like happened two years ago, your stuff will be at sea for four months. Um, we want to do Kickstarter first, pay the print run. Print run paid for. We give stuff to the fans, we give extra stuff, they're happy. Now, we might be looking at 18 boxes in our studio comics, but now they're ours, they're paid for, they're done. Now we know every time we sell one, we're making money. Then we have to plan conventions. So that means talking to conventions, seeing who will guest us, who will give us a booth, who do we have to pay for a booth, and then going into it. Then you have to look at the cost of that. New York Comic Con is $5,000 easily just to be there. Between booth, hotel, and everything. It's New York City. You walk down the street, it's a quarter every step. So uh, it's, uh, it's happened to me. I'm just like, dude, I have no money. Like, we've had amazing times in New York Comic Con where we're like, wow, we made, I'm looking at the thing, I'm like, we made good money, man. And he's like, how much do we have left? 80 bucks. <laughs> Why? And this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's it. So you have to look at it that way. But then I say, okay, the overhead is gone on that. All right, we're, we're going forward. We have the comics. I could give away the comics if I wanted to. I'll, I'll be okay. So we do as much promotion as possible. I'm the mouth. That's why I'm here today and nobody else from the studio is here. So I go out to promote it. So then we want to look at Kickstarter. 
then we'll go to distributorship. Then we're going to Diamond. If I go to Diamond, that means I have to wait three months before I can go to Comixology. That means the comic has to be out and then in the stores, and then I can go to Comixology if I want to do digital. And we don't front digital that much. We actually are, are, are go, just going to start doing that next year. So if I sell 2,500 copies through that, I have 500 copies for the conventions, if everything goes right and everything's paid for and everything else, at $4 a copy, you're looking at maybe the possibility of making $12,000 in a year from one property. And that's not counting digital and, and, and later on issue two, three, four, all right? And reorders and variant covers. So there's the, the, that's one property. But that chain, you have to manage it all the way to the end. Because hopefully if you do, like Tommy has three issues done, we're doing the first graphic novel, then hopefully we can get into books and books, we can get it onto Amazon, we can get it on there. And that will forever live on there, and we'll get a nice little order every once in a while. Hey, send us 100 copies. Cool, send 100 copies. Hey, cool. So in the long, long end. So we're right now looking at Kickstarter as a major way of going. There are some people that have talked to us about doing Indiegogo because there's been big successes on there right now, and especially John being a big name from the 90s, there's a resurgence from the 90s with uh, Cyberfrog and some other properties. So there's talk about bringing uh, uh, Double Impact back. That's a book that he worked on. So we talk about that. But that's how I see it as far as anything because I don't consider it free money, but it's almost a free, uh, it's a pre-sale. It's a, a way to get people excited about it. And each book, because we have so many different properties, each property is its own crowd. You have people that are, hey, I love Tommy. They didn't even know I do zombie years. They love, uh, you know, uh, forgive me, Father. They don't know about the gun. They, 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 they're all separate, different people. So you have to look at each property as its own business almost. And how long, we've had books that have fallen off the wayside because artists or, or, or overall interest didn't happen. And they, they were busts. And, and we're sitting with looking at 300 copies in a box going, what do we do with this? You know, so there's, there's that, that factor too. So you always have to be able, but in the end, you want to have enough money to be able to move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So um, we wanted to move the session now for you guys to have interactive time with the panelists. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming today. Um, and you guys have some books and comics, right, available for purchase and everything else. Um, and if you have, we also wanted to offer up, if you guys have pitch ideas or kind of like, if you guys had any questions about pitching or just self-publishing or anything else, they yeah, have questions about your project. Yeah. I mean, or your own projects as well, you guys can can come talk to them yeah. and spend some time. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you guys. Educational insights. <laughs> so.